Welcome back to Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today, you're listening to Episode 12, the 1997 Interstate Batteries 500 from the Texas Motor Speedway, the inaugural Winston Cup race at that track near Fort Worth, Texas. So I want to thank everyone for joining me again today. Of course, we were off last week because I was on vacation, and it was also an off week in the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. So now we're going to pick things back up with the inaugural race at the Texas Motor Speedway. Um, of course, this was a 1.5-mile track with 24 degrees of banking, and it had a very similar look to the track to Charlotte. Uh, there was a lot of excitement for this race. Uh, Bruden Smith, of course, had built this track and was owned by Speedway Motorsports Incorporated. And the race was to be covered by CBS, which also was exciting. Uh, CBS typically had just covered a handful of NASCAR Winston Cup races this season. Of course, they had covered the Daytona 500 flag to flag since 1979. They typically covered the first race at Michigan and then the second Talladega race. Now, in the 1997 season, the second Talladega race was switching from its late July date, which was in the searing heat in Alabama, to hopefully a little bit more temperate weather in October. So this was exciting for CBS as they were going to cover another race. And it was an inaugural race. And Bruden Smith had put a lot of effort in to make this a big deal. Uh, the rumors are were that CBS paid almost $3.5 million to get the rights to this race. And remember, at this time in NASCAR racing, all contracts were negotiated for TV and radio rights um, through the track owners. So NASCAR had nothing to do with the negotiation process. It wasn't like the situation that we got in 2001 when Fox had part of the season or NBC had the other part of the season. At that time, the races swapped back and forth between different tracks. Um, and there was some exchanging of races between different networks and different bidding processes from that perspective. But, you know, CBS had put a pretty big investment into this race. Uh, and CBS was at an interesting point in their sports coverage. So going into the 1997 season, CBS really didn't have many professional sports rights. So they had had longtime rights to cover the NFL, specifically the NFC. And of course, they lost those rights to Fox in 1994. Uh, and at this point, did not have any NFL rights. Um, they no longer had, um, had rights for the NBA. That had shifted over... Um, to NBC. Uh, and if you look at it, they were kind of the out a little bit in the wilderness. They didn't have any NFL rights. You had ABC with Monday Night Football, who also owned ESPN, who had Sunday Night Football. You, of course, had Fox, who had the NFC contract. And of course, you had C and you had NBC, who at that time had the AFC contract. So it kind of made sense for CBS to kind of try to get maybe a little bit more involved in motorsports. They you know, like I said, it covered those three Winston Cup races a year. They also typically would cover some bush races and some truck races, too, as well. And, of course, they, you know, were in a meteor conglomerate with TNN, too, as well, which covered a lot of cable races. But we discussed this in previous broadcasts. Really, when you look at kind of the mid to late 90s for NASCAR racing, it really was a cable-dominated sport. But you would have some occasional races on broadcast TV, too, as well. So the big story from an on-track perspective at Texas was the track itself. Uh, the drivers got there and were able to have a practice session, a couple of practice sessions on Thursday, and then the goal was for them to be qualifying on Thursday and then provide the drivers more practice on both Friday and Saturday. Uh, 
right away, practice got off to a bad start. So Ricky Craven was involved in a vicious practice crash off of turn four on Thursday. It resulted in him having a broken shoulder and a concussion as well. Um, he ended up having to be taken to the hospital, and Todd Bodine was going to fill in for him the number 25 car. And this started the concern of a lot of drivers complaining that they just didn't like the transition off of turn four onto the front stretch. Most of the drivers were saying that that transition was too abrupt and very, very tight um, getting off turn four. In addition to that, the quad oval, which was similar to the Charlotte Motor Speedway, was not as wide too as well. And drivers were concerned about how much room they would have on the front stretch. Uh, it had progressive banking, so the lower part of the corner was banked at a lesser degree than the higher part. But the problem was with a brand new trick racetrack and brand new asphalt, you know, there was really a one groove racetrack around the bottom of the race track from that perspective. So drivers were voicing a lot of concerns. Brun Smith was kind of having no, none of it saying, Hey, this is an unbelievable facility. We wanted to make this a challenging racetrack. It's not supposed to be an easy racetrack on the drivers. In other news, NASCAR had decided to reduce the Royce rear spoiler height for Ford um, after Ford had shown some pretty good dominance on the intermediate tracks. Of course, Dale Jarrett had won the last two races at intermediate tracks, which, of course, are tracks of one mile or longer in NASCAR wins the cup racing. Typically, usually think of the intermediate tracks really in that mile to mile and a half range. But, of course, he had won at Atlanta and Darlington um, and NASCAR. I decided they thought Ford had a little bit too much advantage. So they were trying to uh, kind of even out the advantage from that perspective. The other big story in Texas was the rain. So after they got some practice in on Thursday, uh, they just had significant, significant problems with rain. In fact, some people said that somewhere between about two and a half to four inches of rain fell between Thursday and Friday. That op ultimately wiped out NASCAR wins the cup qualifying and they the series decided that it was not worthwhile to attempt to attempt qualifying on Saturday. They decided to give the teams more practice. So as a result, much like the race at Richmond, the field would be set by owner points in the top 35. We, of course, now we're beyond the fourth race. So it would be current owner points from the 1997 season, not the 1996 season. And then, of course, it's postmark of entry. So all teams have to send in an entry form and how those entry forms were received among the teams who weren't in the top 35 and points would determine who would make the race. So as a result, obviously Dale Jarrett was the points leader and he would start first and Jeff Gordon would start on the outside pole. The drivers who missed out on the race were Gary Bradbury. This was the first race missed for him in the, in the 1997 season. Um, in the number 19 car, he had, had missed a couple races before he got in the 19 car, but it was the first overall miss race for the 19 team. They had made the first two races with Lloyd Island and Gary Bradbury had been successful uh, in the next three races himself. Randy LaJoy, interestingly enough, for base motorsports, a uh, full-time Bush Series driver and the 1996 defending Bush Grand National Champion had uh, hoped to attempt to make the race. He had also been involved in a crash, but obviously with qualifying wiped out, did not make the race. Wally Dollenbach Jr., who we talked about before, was running a partial schedule in the number 46 car for Felix Sabatis, also failed to qualify. Robert Presley had missed his second race of the season, and things were off to a really rough start for Robert Presley in this new ride for him in the number 29 car. So he had had that crazy wreck at Daytona, He'd also wrecked hard at Rockingham, hadn't run that well at Richmond, um, was involved in another vicious crash 
at Darlington, had missed the Atlanta race, so he'd missed two races, been involved in three hard crashes. And, you know, the 29 team, you know, that's a pretty big-name sponsor, Cartoon Network, Turner Broadcasting, so things certainly weren't off to the start that they had hoped for. David Green, the number 96 cat car, had missed his second race of the season for Buzz McCall. H.B. Bailey also missed the race. Mike Bliss was attempting the race for his for the team that he ran full-time in the Craftsman Truck Series, was unable to qualify. Rick Wilson was trying to qualify the number 27 for Player Motorsports. He also missed the race, and Ed Barrier missed the race, trying to qualify the number 95 car for the Sadler Brothers. So they were able to get in two practice sessions on Saturday. The Saturday morning practice session, Terry Labonte, the Texas native, was the fastest. He had posted a speed over 182 miles an hour. Morgan Shepard was second fastest, a surprise. Dale Earnhardt was third quick. Cal Petty was fourth quick, giving two Pontiacs in the top five. And Brett Bodine had had the fifth fastest speed. Happy hour, the final practice for NASCAR Winston Cup Racing on Saturday. Cal Petty was the fastest. He had a lap actually nearly at 184 miles an hour, which that's really getting around a 1.5 mile track. If you look at, you know, the, the speeds comparable to Charlotte at that time, you know, those were pretty high speeds for sure. Uh, Mike Skinner, the rookie, was second quick. Terry Labonte was third quick. Dale Earnhardt was fourth quick. And Brett Bodine was fifth quick. Uh, interestingly enough, Pontiac, which had really struggled to start the 1997 season, really beyond Bobby Labonte, had placed three cars in the top 10 in speed and happy hour. And that gave hope that maybe Pontiac would have the chance to have a pretty strong run from that perspective. Uh, Mark Martin had won the Bush race on Saturday with a late race pass on Jimmy Spencer. And that set the stage for the cup race. There was obviously quite a few accidents in the Bush race. And again, concerns about this track going into Sunday for the race. We talked about earlier that the race would be covered by CBS. And one thing that was interesting about this race, it was a massive purse for this race. So the overall purse was upwards of $3 million and the winner was going to get over $300,000. If you look at that, Jeff Gordon, I think, had won maybe a little over uh, $350,000 for his Daytona 500 win that season. So it was a big, big purse. You know, Bruden Smith had invested a lot in this race to be a big success and was trying to build it up as a big success. You know, they'd agreed to CBS, which, as we talked about earlier, there weren't as much races at that time on broadcast networks. So that was a big deal from that perspective. And they were trying to make this race a big deal. And this certainly was an untapped market for NASCAR, no doubt. Uh, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth area, very big growing area. NASCAR had not run in Winston Cup since the early 80s when they ran at the Texas World Speedway, which was in College Station, which is in kind of a more rural area of Texas. So there was a lot of excitement uh, as NASCAR went to a new market. Uh, the crowd was massive for the race. Uh, the parking lots, with all the rain, there were grass parking lots that hadn't been paved yet. So they had a lot of issues. So they actually had to bus a lot of the fans in on shuttle buses. But, I mean, it was a big, big crowd. Even the Saturday race for the Bush race had had a large crowd, too, as well. So everyone was interested to see what would happen on Sunday. So in the lead-up to the race on Sunday... It seemed like a lot of the drivers were expressing concern about the racetrack itself. They all agreed that it was an unbelievable facility, a first-class facility. They are excited about all the fans. They are excited about tapping a new market. Certainly, drivers and owners are never going to be sad about a race that has a large purse. Um, but 
there was concern about this track for sure. They had seen one of their friends, Ricky Craven, be involved in a really, really hard crash and get injured pretty badly. Um, and I think a lot of the drivers were really concerned that, you know, they could be hurt in an accident at this track more so than maybe some of the other tracks. And the concern kind of matched the level that you would see before a lot of restrictor plate races, especially Talladega too, as well. You just heard a little bit of trepidation, a lot of the drivers' voices. They just wanted to get the race settled in, everyone to be able to get in a rhythm. They knew it was going to be primarily a one-groove racetrack. Maybe as the race wore on, they would be able to work in another group. But, you know, there was a fair amount of concern from the drivers, I would say, going into this race. So the field got lined up, and we got the green flag, and we went into turn one, and we had a massive wreck. We had a Texas-sized mess on the very first lap of the race. So what had happened... Um, on the front stretch, Dale Daryl Waltrip was trying to get in front of Dale Earnhardt, but they made slight contact as Dale Earnhardt's um, right front touch, touched Daryl Waltrip's left rear. And then Waltrip was kind of swung on the outside there. So he tried to beat Johnny Benson in the number 30 Penzoil Pontiac down into turn one. And I guess he felt like he was clear there, but he really was not clearly clear, hoping maybe that Benson would back off. Benson did not have time to back off. He tapped Daryl Waltrip in the left rear. Waltrip spun around, and it was all said and done. They had collected a bunch of drivers in this wreck. So um, Daryl Waltrip ended up with serious damage all over his car. He didn't even complete a full lap in the race. He would finish 43rd. Cal Petty, who had been one of the fastest cars in practice, had had serious damage serious damage to the race car. Jamie Mayfield in the 37 car had had his radiator broken and had a serious damage to the front nose of his car. Um, Robbie Gordon had had serious damage and was forced to go behind the wall. Also during this wreck, Dale Earnhardt had spun. Now his car had not really had that much damage. He had some sheet metal damage, but his car would not refire. And he was actually lapped while he was on the racetrack and it was determined that he had some damage to the nose of the car, too, as well. Now, some drivers that had some damage but were at least able to continue on um, were Morgan Shepard, Dale Earnhardt, we talked about, Lake Speed, Brett Bodine, Todd Bodine, subbing for Ricky Craven in number 25, Mike Skinner, the rookie, Johnny Benson, who spun but had not gotten serious damage after getting involved with Daryl Waltrip, uh, Bobby Hamilton, and Rick Mast. So after all the cleanup, we got a restart on lap 12. Um, and Jeff Gordon was able to take the lead from Dale Jarrett on lap 14 after Jarrett had led the first 13 laps from the pole. DJ very quickly dropped back to fourth um, in one lap, and Terry Labonte moved up to second, and Jeff Burton moved up to third. Now, on lap 19, we had our second caution in the race. This would be an incident that would involve uh, Bobby Hillen, Derek Cope, and Greg Sachs. So Bobby Hillen just lost it going into turn one, and unfortunately there was nowhere for Derek Cope and the number 36 Skittles Pontiac to go or Greg Sachs. Greg Sachs, the number 20 Hardys for Thunderbird for Harry Rainier, would not get a did not finish and finish 40th. Derek Cope finished 41st, and Bobby Hillen finished 42nd. And the struggles continued for Bobby Hill in 1997 and really continued on from 1996. He now had eight did not finishes in the past nine races. None of the leaders decided the pit under the caution and the race would restart on lap 26. And we'd after the two early cautions actually get a nice long green flag run. So we would get a 72 lap green flag run. Uh, 
So Dale Earnhardt was had the opportunity to try to restart to the inside to get his lap back, was unable to do so. Um, we also saw that Jeff Bur Bodine was struggling and it was dropping back a bit. Uh, Mark Martin was able to pass Dale Jarrett and move into third around lap 40. And by lap 48, Jeff Gordon was already starting the lap cars. So he was very quickly had gotten through the field there. I mean, just about 22 laps, he was already beginning the lapping process on cars. And once the race pace settled in, most of his laps were in about the 169 mile an hour bra bracket from that perspective. Cal Petty was able to return to the track around lap 50. And after 50 laps complete, Jeff Gordon was leading the race. His Hendrick teammate, Terry Labonte, was in second. Mark Martin was running third. Jeff Burden was running fourth. Dale Jarrett was in fifth. Dale Jarrett's teammate, Ernie Irvin, was running sixth. Bobby Labonte was in seventh. Ted Musgrave, um, excuse me, Ricky Rudd was running eighth. Ted Musgrave was ninth. And Ward Burden was tenth. Just a note on Bobby Labonte, he was running a special paint scheme for this race wow, with the Texas Lone Star and blue, red, and white on the hood. And obviously, Interstate Batteries, his primary sponsor, was sponsoring the race. So he had a special scheme going on. Terry Labonte began to close down on Jeff Gordon as Jeff Gordon got in lap traffic. And we were seeing how challenging it was. You know, Gordon had a much faster car than some of these carts toward the back, but he had to be pretty patient about making his moves on a one-groove track. It seemed like most drivers like to try to get to the inside of a driver off turn two and then beat the driver down into turn three. You didn't see as much passing off a of turn four as we talked about as our pre-race discussion. It was just very tight off of that turn. So after 57 laps, we had 28 cars in the lead lap. Around lap 64, green flag pit stops began. Ernie Irvin was one of the first to pit. Dale Jarrett pitted on one of the next laps. And when Jeff Gordon pitted, Terry Labonte had the opportunity to grab the lead on lap 67. Um, Gordon came in for a pit stop, and they had some difficulty in the pit. So interestingly enough, Chad Canals, as we all know, the great crew chief for Jimmy Johnson, was a tire changer for Jeff Gordon at that time. And he slipped, and Jeff Gordon ended up having a pit stop that was over 21 seconds. While the leaders were pitting, Mark Martin was able to lead a lap. Michael Waltrip was caught for too fast exiting pit road. And at that time, the penalty was a stop and go penalty. And unfortunately, that really set Michael back because he had a pretty good car and that would put him a lap down. Ernie Irvin was reporting that something was wrong with his right front tire and he was forced to pit again. Bobby Labonte was able to lead a few laps in exchange for green flag pit stops. Mike Skinner led 10 laps. Um, as other drivers pitted because he had pitted under a previous caution. Um, and then after Skinner pitted, Jeff Gordon was able to gain the, really gain the lead on lap 83. Um, by lap 86, Jeff Gordon had lap Chad Little, who was actually having one of his better runs in the number 97, John Deere Pontiac, and there were just 15 cars in the lead lap. One driver who had had an impressive move up through the field, especially considering how challenging passing had been was Jimmy Spencer. So Spencer had started 33rd and worked his way all the way up to 10. Meanwhile, Dale Earnhardt wasn't making a lot of progress. He was still a lap down and he was running in 25th position. So the top four drivers on lap 91 were Jeff Gordon, Terry Labonte in second, Dale Jarrett in third, and Mark Martin in fourth. The third caution of the race would come out on lap 98. Jeff Gordon was trying to lap Jimmy Spencer and he thought he had gotten to the inside of Spencer in turn one. Unfortunately, Spencer came down and Spencer spun around and hit the wall hard driver's side. So there would be pit stops under the yellow flag. And when the pit stops were completed, Terry Labonte had 
the lead out of the pits. Dale Jarrett was in second. Mark Martin was third. Jeff Gordon was fourth. And Ted Musgrave was in fifth. The race restarted with Terry Labonte in the lead on lap 106. Unfortunately for Terry, he was trying to lap a couple slower cars, and he got caught up on the outside. When he got caught up on the outside, this allowed three cars to actually get their lap back. The number 99 car of Jeff Burton, the 97 of Chad Little, and the number 8 of Hot Strickland. All were having good runs within about the top 15, so they were excited to get back on the lead lap. But unfortunately for the 97, a few laps later, he got late, loose, and Dale Jarrett was able to lap back past him. Um, and then Dale Jarrett was eventually able, in a pretty fierce battle, able to lap Hutch Strickland. But Jeff Burton, in the meantime, had an extremely fast car, and he had pulled well away from the leaders as uh, Dale Jarrett had the battle to put both Chad Little and Hutch Strickland a lap down. Uh, when the race returned from commercial, we had found out that Mark Martin had moved up to the second position. And it didn't take Mark Martin long to actually take the lead in turn three. On lap 135, Mark Martin grabbed the lead of the race. Unfortunately for Mark, the lead would be short-lived. After leading nine consecutive laps, his engine blew up off of turn four on lap 143, and Mark Martin would be credited with a 38th place finish. This had dropped him to eighth in points, 285 points behind. It had been a difficult start to the season for Mark Martin. He hadn't had a lot of major mechanical issues, but after a good run at the Daytona 500, he'd won the pole at Rockingham, but struggled much of the race, finished barely in the top 15 and was a lap down, didn't have a great day at Richmond, had a better day at Atlanta, was going to have a good day at Darlington, but had a tire problem. So the performance had been a little bit up and down, and then you throw in the engine problem today, and it had been off to a pretty tough start for Mark Martin. And remember, he was coming off of 1996 where he had not won a race, and actually Jack Roush had not won any races. So when Martin blew up, that brought out the fourth caution of the race on lap 144. And during yellow flag pit stops, Ricky Rudd decided to opt for two tires. Terry Labonte came out of the pits second. Bobby Labonte came out of the pits third. Dale Jarrett was fourth. And Jeff Gordon was fifth. The race would restart on lap 150. And this was the first time all season that Ricky Rudd had led. Bobby Labonte struggled on the restart and dropped back to fifth as Dale Jarrett and Jeff Gordon both got around him. Jeff Gordon continued to exert his strength by making a pass of Dale Jarrett and moving into the third position. Meanwhile, Terry Labonte was able to get around Ricky Rudd five laps after the restart, and Bill Elliott was able to briefly get a lap back to as well. It seemed that the two tires were not working out well for Ricky Rudd, and he was starting to drop back through the field a bit. On lap 148, the CBS cameras caught Sterling Marlin brushing the wall off of turn four. And a few laps later, we would have yet another caution. So the initial incident started with Rusty Wallace spinning his car around and crashing hard on the front stretch. Brett Bodine had spun into the grass, Mike Skinner had gotten damage, and Sterling Marlin had gotten some damage too as well. Now remember, at this time in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, drivers raced back to the caution flag. And Ernie Irvin had an extremely fast car and was trying to get his lap back just like Jeff Burton had gotten his lap back on an earlier exchange. Well, as the cars came down the front stretch, Greg Sachs, we had talked about, had been involved in an earlier accident, was running very, very slow. He knew the caution was out. He knew there was debris on the racetrack. Well, Ernie Irvin didn't realize this, and just short of the start-finish line, Ernie Irvin slammed into the back of Greg Sachs. His car then veered hard to the outside retaining wall to the right. Unfortunately for Jeff Gordon, who was running second, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. There was no way for him to slow his car down in time, and he got significant damage to the front end of his car, 
and his chance at being a serious contender to win the race were over. The team was able to make repairs to the race car, and Jeff Gordon ended up being credited with a 30th place finish. Meanwhile, Rusty Wallace's crew was not able to make a ch changes to the I'm sorry, fix the car for him to be able to get back out there. And Rusty finished 37th. This continued the up and down season for Rusty Wallace. He had run well at Rockingham and Richmond, but had been in a wreck in Atlanta, struggled at Daytona, and had a decent day at Darlington, but now had a struggle at Texas too as well. In addition, Ted Musgrave was experiencing engine problems. He had dropped a cylinder, but eventually would have to give up the ghost and finish in 35th position. With Ernie Irvin's damage, he was relegated to a 36th place finish. So, after that um, caution, which was the fifth caution of the race, we had yellow flag pit stops. Dale Jarrett, unfortunately, was caught for speeding off a of pit road and was had to go to the end of the longest line, and the race would restart on lap 175. At this point, we had Terry Labonte in the lead, Ricky Rudd running second, Ward Burton having an excellent run in third, his brother Jeff in fourth, and Johnny Benson, who was involved in that wreck to start the race, had worked his way all the way up to the fifth position. Just after the restart, both Bill Elliott and Dale Earnhardt were able to get back on the lead lap in 11th and 12th position, respectively. On lap 177, Johnny Benson brought out the sixth caution of the race when he spun and suffered slight damage. Benson, of course, was involved in the first caution too as well when he made contact with Darrell Waltrip and that triggered that massive wreck in turns one and two. Meanwhile, the drivers were racing back to the caution and this was a big moment for Dale Earnhardt. He was able to actually get his lap back. Bill Elliott had briefly gotten in front of Terry Labonte, but unfortunately when the caution came out, Labonte beat Bill Elliott back to the start finish line as he had passed him a couple laps earlier. So for Dale Earnhardt, this was a big, big boost. The race had gotten off to a disastrous start. He had spun. He'd had that nose damage. He couldn't get the car refired. He got lapped on the racetrack. So for Earnhardt to be back on the lead lap and still have almost half the race in front of him, he had to feel pretty good about that from that perspective. The race would restart on lap 180, but we'd have another quick caution on lap 184. This was due to oil on the racetrack, and we talked about this earlier. Ted Musgrave, who had been down a cylinder, blew up and was completely out of the race. So to reset the field... Uh, after they would come to the restart on lap 188, you had Terry Labonte as the leader. You had Ricky Rudd running second. You had Jeff Burden in third. You had Ward Burden in fourth. You had Bobby Labonte in fifth. You had Dale Jarrett running sixth. You had Todd Bodine in seventh. You had Dale Earnhardt in eighth. You had Sterling Marlin in ninth. And you had Johnny Benson in tenth. As the race restarted, Touch Strickland, who we talked about, had a pretty strong car all day. He was a lap down, but was running in the top 15, was actually able to make up his lap and get back on the lead lap. But kind of the story for the number eight Stavola brothers team all season, just as Hutt had got that lap back almost a lap later, he dropped down low on the racetrack, ended up having a clutch problem and was credited with a 33rd place finish. Meanwhile, Daryl Earnhardt was moving up. He had restarted in the eighth position and had already worked his way up to fifth. Then he passed Dale Jarrett and moved into fourth. Jarrett was running fifth and Ward Burton was running sixth. On lap 195, Jeff Burton's car was the car that was on the move and he had moved into the second position. So as we reached the 200 lap mark in the race, Terry Labonte was leading, Jeff Burton was in second, Ricky Rudd was in third, Earnhardt was fourth, Dale Jarrett was fifth, Ward Burton was sixth, Todd Bodine was in seventh, Bobby Labonte was in eighth, 
Sterling Marlin was in ninth, and Johnny Benson was 10th. And Terry Labonte had approximately a 2.1 second lead over Jeff Burton. On lap 211, Ricky Rudd was able to pass Jeff Burton and move into the second position. Meanwhile, Terry Labonte continued to pull away. By lap 220, he now had a 4.6 second lead over second place running Ricky Rudd. Green flag pit stops started among the leaders, and Ward Burton was one of the first drivers to pit. Taylor Bonnie and Ricky Rudd pitted not soon after, and Jeff Burton was able to lead two laps in the exchange of green flag pit stops. We learned on this pit stop that Dale Jarrett had no clutch. Now, in this time in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, if teams ran the Jericho transmission, which at one time was mainly a road course transmission, you didn't necessarily need to have a clutch to shift gears. But it was going to make it very, very difficult for Dale Jarrett to get off pit road because he was going to have to use a higher gear from that perspective. Todd Bodine, who was subbing in the number 25 car for Ricky Craven, was actually able to lead a lap in the exchange of green flag pit stops. And Sterling Marlin was also able to lead two laps, too, as well. Meanwhile, Jeff Gordon returned back to the track. And this was important. Gordon picked up quite a few positions by returning back to the track. And all points count toward the championship, too, as well. CBS reset the field for the viewers on lap 247, which left us less than 90 laps left in the race. Terry Labonte was leading, Jeff Burton was running second, Ricky Rudd was in third, Dale Jarrett was in fourth, Burton's brother Ward was running fifth, Dale Earnhardt was sixth, Bobby Labonte was in seventh, Todd Bodine driving the number 25 car for Ricky Craven was eighth, Sterling Marlin was ninth, and Johnny Benson was tenth, the first car one lap down. On lap 251, we had the eighth caution of the race. Steve Grissom spun in turn two and suffered minor damage to the left rear of his car. It's likely that he spun an oil from Rick Mass as Mass engine had blown a few laps earlier and Rick was credited with a 31st place finish. Most of the leaders pitted under the caution and Ricky Rudd was able to run the, win the race off pit road. Taylor Bonney was in second, Burton was third, Earnhardt fourth, Dale Jarrett fifth, Ward Burton sixth, Bobby Labonte seventh, Todd Bodine eighth, and Sterling Marlin was the final car in the lead lap in ninth position. On lap 258, the race would restart, and Johnny Benson was pushing very hard to try to get a lap back. But unfortunately, he spun off of turn two right in front of Jeff Burton and Dale Jarrett. Then the car came back down across the racetrack, and as it came back down across the racetrack on the back flat back stretch, unfortunately, Joe Nemechek slammed into the front of Johnny Benson's car that was facing in the wrong direction. It would result in a disappointing finish for both drivers. Johnny Benson would be credited with a 28th place finish. Joe Nemechek would be credited with a 29th place finish. And Chad Little, who had run very strong and had one of his better runs of the season, and number 97, John Deere car, had suffered serious damage to the front of his car, and he would eventually finish in 26th place. So that was the ninth caution of the race, and the leaders decided to pit. Now, there were different strategies decided this time around. Terry Labonte had decided to take gas only. Ricky Craven, Ricky Craven, excuse me, Ricky Rudd had decided that he wanted to take four tires, and he dropped to the last car in the lead lap in ninth position. The race would restart on lap 269, and now Todd Bodine was the leader. Jeff Burton was running second. Bobby Labonte was in third. Dale Earnhardt was fourth. Ward Burton was in fifth. Terry Labonte was in sixth, and Ricky Rudd was back in the seventh position. On the restart, Michael Waltrip was now trying to get a lap back, and he was another driver who had had a really, really strong car, but had been lapped early in the race um, due to 
that problem where he had got caught speeding off of the pits. As the race restarted on lap 269, Todd Bodine was in the lead, Jeff Burton was running second, Dale Jarrett was third, Bobby Labonte was in fourth, Dale Earnhardt was in fifth, Ward Burton was in sixth, Terry Labonte was in seventh, and Ricky Rudd was running in the eighth position. Jeff Burton was ready to take the lead from Todd Bodine, and he probably had a stronger car than Todd Bodine. Bodine's car slid slightly up the racetrack in turn two, and unfortunately, Jeff Burton made contact with Bodine as they came off the turn. Bodine would get some pretty serious damage from the wreck and would end up finishing in 25th position, and we had the caution come out on lap 277 for the 10th time in the race. Lake Speed had bad, bad luck and had also been involved in the incident too as well. Some drivers decided to pit under the yellow flag. One most notably was Terry Labonte, who had had a strong car, especially in the mid-stages of the races, but he wasn't real happy with his last set of tires, so they did make a four-tire change. Ricky Rudd came in to top off the fuel just in case the race could make it the whole way, and Dale Earnhardt pitted too as well. On lap 282, the race restarted, and this would be... There would be no more caution flags at the end of the race. The final 58 laps would be run under the green flag. As the race restarted, Jeff Burton was in the lead. Dale Jarrett was running second. Bobby Labonte was in third. Ward Burton was in fourth. Dale Earnhardt was in fifth. Ricky Rudd was sixth. Terry Labonte was seventh. And Sterling Marlin was eighth. Those were the eight cars in the lead lap. As CBS returned from commercial, we had learned that Dale Earnhardt moved up to the fourth position. And it seemed like at this point he was kind of charging toward the front of the field. Meanwhile, with about 40 laps to go, um, Terry Labonte and Ricky Rudd were both able to pass Ward Burton. And then not soon after, Labonte and Rudd were move, able to move past Earnhardt. So it seemed like early in the run, Earnhardt had a strong car, but he did not have as good of a long-run car. Meanwhile, Jeff Burton was continuing to pull away from Dale Jarrett. He now had a three-second lead with 30 laps to go. Now, remember, Jared was hurt on the restart because he only had third and fourth gear he reported after the race. So with only high gear, he was going to have a little bit of trouble getting his car up to speed. And he also had to be careful that he didn't cause damage to the transmission, too, as well. With 20 laps to go, it was looking more and more like Jeff Byrne was going to become a first-time winner in NASCAR Winston Cup League racing. He had extended his lead to three and a half seconds. The lead would fluctuate a bit with traffic, but Burton continued to have a commanding lead. With five laps to go, he'd extended his lead to five seconds over Dale Jarrett. Burton was able to take the white flag and easily come back around to pick up his first NASCAR Winston Cup victory. It was a grueling race that had taken over four hours to complete, had had 10 cautions for 73 laps. The average speed was slowed to just over 125 miles an hour, and Burton's margin of victory over second place Dale Jarrett was 4.067 seconds. There had been 19 lead changes among 10 drivers. It was a very emotional win for Jeff Burton, although he held it together pretty well in victory lane. But his wife, Kim, was extremely emotional as the laps wound down and the celebration for Jeff Burton to win the race. Burton also kind of started a new type of celebration in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. He took the Gatorade that was stuck on the top of his car, opened up the bottle, and kind of sprayed it all over his crew. You would see Burton typically do this almost all the time in victory, especially in the 90s, giving his crowd, giving the crew, and anyone else standing around in victory lane a bit of a pop or Gatorade shower. So Jeff Burton had picked up his first career Winston Cup victory in his 96th start, and he had led 60 laps. 
and he had had his first NASCAR Winston Cup win at 29 years of age. And it had been a lot of vindication for Jeff Burton, who, of course, had had a pretty successful career in the NASCAR Bush Series and moved up to Winston Cup Racing in 1994 to drive for the Stavola brothers. He had some okay results, but certainly the Stavola brothers weren't a team that had one of the stronger equipment. But his good performance had caught the eye of Jack Roush. And Burton seemed to be one of those drivers who was certain to break through for victory, but was able, unable to win in the 1996 season. So it was a big deal for Jeff Burton to go to victory lane and certainly was helped by the veteran presence of Buddy Parrott, too, as well. Meanwhile, the race had also broken a long losing streak for Roush Racing. They had not won a race since October of 1995 when Mark Martin went to victory lane. While the strong start to the season for Dale Jarrett had continued, he had now had five straight top three finishes. And after his trouble at Daytona, Jarrett now had two wins, two seconds, and one third place finish in the last five races. Bobby Labonte came home as the best Pontiac in third position. Terry Labonte, Bobby's brother and Texas native, came home fourth. Terry had led the most laps, 104, but it seems like his car wasn't able to quite get down in or adjusted just quite right in the late stages of the race. Ricky Rudd had led his first laps this season, and he had finished fifth, leading 26 laps, which was help for the Rudd. He, had, of course, had wrecked it at Atlanta and had to get out of the car because he was feeling Ill, Ill at Darlington. So this was a good bounce-back effort for Ricky Rudd. Dale Earnhardt matched his best run of the season, finishing sixth. Ward Burden came home seventh. Sterling Marlin came home eighth. He was the last car on the lead lap, and he actually led two laps in the race. Michael Waltrip was ninth. He was one lap down. Good day for Steve Grissom, although he'd been involved in a couple incidents. He had rallied to finish 10th. Bill Elliott finished in 11th position. John Andretti was 12th. It was a good day for Kenny Wallace, too, as well. He had finished 13th. And Dave Marcus had come home in the 15th position, three laps down. A great run for Dave Marcus, one of those independent drivers that's always trying to get the most out of his car. He did a nice job staying out of trouble in this race, too, as well. So it had been a wild race from start to finish for the inaugural race at the Texas Motor Speedway. You had Jeff Burton, a first-time winner, going to victory lane, which is always popular, and most felt Burton was on the cusp. He had had many good runs in the 1996 season, and everyone believed that he had the ability to get to victory lane. We also had that wild crash on the first lap of the race, and also some of the best drivers in NASCAR Winston Cup racing be involved in wrecks, like an Ernie Irvin, like a Jeff Gordon. We had Mark Martin, who had a very, very strong car, and it blown up too as well. So as the drivers left Texas Motor Speedway, most had kind of echoed the same thoughts. They thought that it was an outstanding facility with great amenities for the fans. It definitely was a type of track that would be a big part of the future of NASCAR, but they definitely were concerned about the design of the track, especially that bad transition off of turn four, especially knowing that Ricky Craven had been seriously injured in an accident off of that corner two as well. Bruton Smith would have none of it. For the most part, he said that they were not going to make changes to the track and the drivers were simply going to have to be able to adjust to it. So when we take a look at the all-important point standings, not surprisingly, Dale Jarrett continued to lead the point standings. He had had five top three race finishes in the first six races of the season. Terry Labonte was second in points, 85 points back. Bobby Labonte had moved up to third in points, now 136 points back. On the strength of his victory, Jeff Gordon was now fourth in points, 157 points back. Jeff Gordon's problems had relegated him to a 30th place finish, and he was now 184 points behind Dale Jarrett. 
It's interesting to note this because a lot of people had talked about the slow start that Jeff Gordon had gotten off to the 1996 season. And of course, he had those two finishes outside the top 40, and he was 276 points behind the points leader after only two races. But Gordon had quickly made up ground, and after six races, he trailed the points leader by just 76 points. Why are we talking about this? To illustrate how much of a hole Gordon had to dig out of. He was now 184 points behind Dale Jarrett. That's a pretty sizable margin, and he actually was going to have less races to make up the deficit than when he fell way behind in the 1996 season. Meanwhile, it had been a good day for Ricky Rudd after a couple tough weekends the previous two race weekends. Rudd was now 6th in points, 219 points back. Jeff Bonine was 7th in points, 254 points back. There was a tie for 8th in points between Sterling Marlin and Ward Burden. Both were 285 points behind. And Dale Earnhardt had moved into the top 10 in points at 291 points behind the points leader. Meanwhile, Bill Elliott and Rusty Wallace were 11th and 16th respectively in points. So I want to thank everyone for listening to the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast today. Our next episode, we'll be taking a look at the Food City 500 from Bristol, Tennessee. And this was another outstanding race. So please listen in next week. I also want to give out a couple shout outs. So we have a couple international listeners on the podcast, which is really, really cool. I saw in my analytics that we've got a listener from Canada as well as a listener from the United Kingdom. So I appreciate both you guys listening to the podcast. Also want to just give a shameless plug. If you know people that you think would be interested in this podcast, please share it with with them. I'm trying to build the audience for this podcast. I mean, I'm not really doing this for the audience at all, but I would love for the podcast to reach more people because I do think it's an interesting subject. And I don't know that a lot of people are into looking at old school racing or retro type racing too as well. So if you can share it with a friend or someone that you know, enjoys racing that would be awesome again i want to thank all my loyal listeners this has been the stock car racing time machine podcast with tim Naiman. thank you so much for listening and have an excellent day